Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to this special episode from the Agora Podcast Network. The topic of today's conversation is the current political crisis in the country of Ukraine. Today, we are joined by two of the newest members of the Agora Podcast Network, Brock Rademan and Pete Sleeman of the Lands of Leviathan Podcast. Like I said, today we're talking about the crisis in Ukraine and what's going on in Ukraine and what got us to this point in the Ukraine And to start off, we thought that we would just introduce what we're talking about and what's the current situation, and Brock are going to fill us in on that. Hey there, guys. So, yeah. Um, So, for just the crisis in Ukraine that's happening at the moment, I'm sure that um, most of you have seen this in the news often, all the time, about what's happening. And it's really interesting crisis, actually, because Ukraine as a place exists as kind of this buffer zone between Europe and Russia and has often played a part of being um, an area of contestation between these two very large powers. Um, So I'm sure that many of you are aware of um, the Crimean War that happened um, in the late 1800s and a whole bunch of other contests that happened between Russia and Europe, and to a certain extent between the Ottoman Empire as well. But to bring it to the uh, modern uh, part of this conflict, um, it occurred mainly because the uh, then president, um, who, please don't um, hate me for my pronunciation, Viktor Yanukovych, um, was engaged in uh, discussions and agreements with the European Union of whether to join or not. Um, and uh, Yanukovych actually suspended these um, talks, which eventually led to outright contestation between people who were pro this agreement and anti this agreement. Um, and it actually brought to bear a whole bunch of other ethnic disagreements that had been fermenting in the region for quite some time. So Ukraine is home to quite a large number of ethnic Russians, um, or sometimes referred to as Russophone people who speak um, Russian. And a lot of those people are left over from when um, the Ukraine was controlled by you know, different dimensions of the Russian Empire as well as the Soviet Union. Now, Russia definitely took advantage of the situation where it um, annexed Crimea in uh, 2014. And uh, Brock, I don't know if you will disagree with me, but this is actually one of the first annexations in 
international politics that we've seen by like one of the big powers since essentially the Second World War. Um, so it was really interesting for us political science to have scientists to have a look at. But I think it was uh, interesting. Of- I'm going to jump in there because it was quite a unique historical occurrence in the you know in, in under the microscope of the last fifty years. But it yeah. was not necessarily surprising. Um, no. It was, you know, it was a historical practice that normally took place between large powers, political powers, or even empires. And nowadays, you, you understand it's quite rare for a country, even a country as large and powerful as Russia, to annex a territory because it's so strongly frowned upon in the international community, given the international norms of territorial integrity and sovereignty. So, because Crimea belonged in the in the contemporary international system to the sovereign state of Ukraine, it's it's really strongly frowned upon uh, that that Russia um, had such influence over, over the annexation of Crimea. But yet, at the same time, like I said, it, w- it wasn't that surprising, given that between Viktor Yanukovych's uh, rescinding or walking back of the discussions with the European Union and uh, and the subsequent referendum that took place in the Crimea to establish what the sentiment was among the people there um, regarding their 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 feelings towards Russia and how badly they want to be a part of the the Russian state um, mm. and that referendum came back as a ninety seven percent well very controversial ninety seven percent in favor of joining Russia mm. and when that result was released. Um, sometime in March in 2014, then Russia took advantage of that and they jumped right in and they said, right, because these people want to be, they are, they consider themselves Russians and because they want to be part of the country of Russia, we're going to take it over. Um, and U- Ukraine having the, the sense of, about itself to not contest that violently, they kind they reluctantly handed it over. So people yeah. kind of understood historically and they understood legally what had just happened um, and so it wasn't all that surprising, but yes, it is certainly, with at least with within the contemporary world of politics, quite a, uh, an anomaly. Now, um, to explain it further, so there's a divide between the East and the West in Ukraine. What's the battlefront now, or what's the the crisis at this moment? Well, it's interesting now because you've actually got a bunch of separate regions that are you know, largely separated between north and south. So the northern part of of um, Crimea is still, you know, Russian separatists getting involved there. Um, the southern part of Crimea is um, still under a certain amount of control of the uh, Ukrainian government, but they're still under conflict there. Um, and, uh, you know, Brock will talk more about this because I think he knows a little bit more, but you've also got quite a bit of, like, Russian separatist movement in the eastern part of Ukraine totally. So it's important to note here that Crimea is in, like, the northeastern area of of um, the Ukraine, which puts it on the border with Russia. And um, it's, you know, north of, of Kiev, which is the capital city, and it... What's interesting here is that it provides quite a lot of contact between Russia and the what is now the NATO-controlled part of Europe, which is one of the reasons why Russia did this in the first place, was to create a buffer between a Ukraine that is part of NATO 
and Russia herself, which obviously wants to stay as far away from NATO. So you've got these battle lines being drawn pretty much down the middle part, down the middle of Ukraine, separating the east and west from each other. You're quite, yes, that's quite accurate. Uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, like Peter says, is definitely sympathetic towards the, the Russian state. Um, given that they consider themselves Russian, a lot more than half of the population there, uh, if you ask them you know, what nationality they belong to, they would say, they would tell you that they're Russian. They speak Russian, they go to school in Russian, they practice Russian traditions, customs, and they're part of the greater Russian culture. Um, thus, this, lot, this great sympathy for rebel movements and rebel separatists within that area, within that geographic area, that want to, that wish to break away from the Ukraine. And currently, um, among, that sentiment is still remains strong. It has been stronger over the last two years than it is right now. We know that um, you know, since the ceasefire um, in February last year, things have calmed down to a certain extent. But it, it, it remains a crisis. Things are still heated and, uh, and separatists still exist and they still wish for their territories to be reunited with Russia. But that is, that is not going ahead. There is this uh, very slow political movement on that front. And, uh, and fortunately, um, sober heads are prevailing in, in preventing all-out warfare within that zone. It would, if it had to happen, if things had to escalate in that region... I would predict, in my personal opinion here, yeah, I would predict it would look something like uh, Kurdistan in the north of Iraq that do not necessarily want to be a part of Iraq um, and sympathize maybe more a bit more with Turkey, but, uh, but, are, but are prepared to, to, be there, to be a sovereign nation, yet they, they will choose to sympathize more with, with one of their neighbors. So in a, in, a protracted, in a war like that, it tends to be protracted. The conflict can become more than political it becomes cultural uh, and you know as as uh, conflict drags on so it becomes historical and it'd be very difficult to solve a, a problem like that which is why although things could be worse in this in the eastern territories with the separatist movements in ukraine it's um, it's important not to let anything get out of hand and that's why it remains a, cri a crisis it's it's a, it's a powder keg at the moment that um, that if not dealt with soon although peaceful now if not uh, quenched for good could uh, could lead to protracted antagonisms with between Russia and the, and the greater region of of eastern europe and the european union and peter uh, s and brock do you see in the in the Ukrainian context, is the religious aspect as um, as important as it is um, as um, maybe it is in other conflicts around the world? Um, well, to be honest, I think that the religious impact is actually not as important um, in this conflict, and in a lot of times, religious impacts are overblown by. Um, media and the way that these things are reported um, because religion is a very easy explainer of specific things oh it's it's religious conflicts that explains it we're done um, what I would say more is that it's a cultural conflict and uh, the reason I say that is if you go back into the history of the region um, you know Russia has been essentially separated from European political development 
basically up until the end of the Second World War, um, and f since the creation of the Ottoman Empire. Once the Ottoman Empire took over, and if you look at a map of where the conflict is now, all of that area was controlled to a large extent by the Ottoman Empire. And that led to a situation where Russia, which was a European power before the Ottoman Empire, had to develop independently. Um, suddenly, with the demise of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, um, the creation of states now, which Ukraine was one of them, as well as you know what was Czechoslovakia, which is now obviously the Czech Republic and Slovakia, um, it created a whole bunch of different political units, which Russia and Europe now had to deal with, but with two very separate ideas of how to deal with them. And if you, like Brock is our international relations expert, so you know, I'm sure he'll weigh in here. But I think that really one of the biggest things here is that the West at the moment, which I'm excluding Russia from, operates on a very idealistic idea of international relations. They want to try and create this globalized world of a community of nations, which was the founding principles of the United Nations. And, uh, you know, America as being one of the vanguards of this idea, along with NATO, has been trying to draw in a whole bunch of different actors into this idea, which is a very cultural Western idea of creating this community of nations. Russia, on the other hand, operates on a much more realistic um, theory of international relations. They see any incursion into their space as an aggression. So when, for instance, Ukraine got invited and accepted into the NATO alliance, that created a very scary situation for Russian um, international thinkers and foreign policymakers because it meant you had an essentially foreign power right on your doorstep, which Russia's never been used to because they've always had buffer states. So what you have here is uh, something that was coined by a thinker called Samuel Huntington. It's a clash of civilizations. One is Russian, one is European and American. Two ideas coming together that might not necessarily gel that well. Now, on one side you do have Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, and on the other side you do have Greek Orthodoxy. But I don't think that they're that important. I think that's a way to explain it. Um, that makes it very simple. But I think if you look deeper, these are cultural conflicts that occur continually and have been occurring for the past couple of hundred years. I agree with Peter S. there. Um, the, if we look at the history of Russia's influence in the Ukraine and broadly throughout Eastern Europe, it has definitely been one of a realist nature. Um, even before you know, the, the state, you know, when it was back when it was the Soviet Union, it was very big on exercising its sphere of influence, on expanding its sphere of influence. And that sphere of influence is basically, a, can be sometimes a geographical area in which there are, there's a physical location with, of, a, of Russian presence where they're able to control policy, where they're able to influence public opinion, where they can um, produce certain uh, media uh, outlets uh, where they can host public rallies and they can ultimately culminate support for the dominant regime. But it, it, a sphere of influence can also be an intangible uh, room in which there's an ideological power behind Russian dominance uh, in, the, in this case. And both spheres, the, the tangible, the geographic location and the intangible sphere of influence were both used by Russia in very smart and powerful ways 
to overwhelm parts of Eastern Eastern Europe to get people to buy in to being Russian, to identify with uh, the Russian culture and the, and the Russian identity. Uh, now, part of that was religious, where people were inclined to call themselves Russian Orthodox, uh, or at least uh, participate in uh, religious practices that were that were not intensely European. Then, then Mother Russia would condone that. But if it had its say, it would ultimately override political conflict. It did. Uh, historically, Russia has not enjoyed practicing uh, religious customs or at least accentuating the religious aspects of its culture in a way that jeopardizes its political stability and its political influence and its political strength. So while we have seen antagonisms between religious factions uh, between Russia and, and the areas around it, and particularly in the Ukraine, it's not been a driving force behind the conflict where, as much as it has been in the past. And we could certainly look to use it, its international behavior, its behavior in the international uh, realm, and it, particularly within its spheres of influence, that explain this conflict a lot better, such as um, ideological pro- uh, propaganda and, uh, and cultural differences. Where um, you know we can see, if we had to look at this in terms of, if I had to try and if I had to try and vindicate this opinion, I would look to the types of conflict that are being practiced by the parties involved. So if we, if it was true that the that the religious conflict here was was salient, you would see thing you you would see old fashioned uh, pitchforks and torches coming out. You would not uh, you would see bands running around in the streets. Um, seemingly um, disorganized, uh, rather vehement, v- malicious, but ultimately on the grand scale controllable. They would, it would not break out across borders. It would not gather uh, international movements, perhaps international sympathy or support, but it would be a, a rather disjointed effort between the factions. And that's not what we see. Instead, what we see is a far more cohesive insurgency that is organized around ideological similarities. They are they are not as, as active as insurgents could be, but they are certainly well equipped, well armed, well trained, and they have and they they share uh, strong political motivations rather than religious ones. So because of those features of the of the fighting factions, I again I'm I'm inclined to say that religion is not at the heart of this conflict. It, you're, um, what it sounds like you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the religion is almost a way to um, just another piece to identify which tribe you're in. Yes. It's another, um, you know, you wear a certain soccer shirt and it's a way to say that you're either more Russian focused or you're more Western focused. I agree with you. I think I shouldn't um, under, undermine how intense the conflict is, and when it is this uh, calamitous, you, you know you will look for anything in your enemy that differences that differentiates them from you. So it, you know if if they happen to be part of a different religion, a very powerful um, identity factor, then of course you will you will mention that as part of your differences. And like you say, it could come down to the the the, the sports team that you support. Um, so 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 whatever you know. Be, can be made salient, almost will be made salient, but uh, but that's and unfortunately, some types of journalists will jump onto that to, to explain away the complexity of the situation. Um, and now, if we were to look at 
maybe get a bit more into these factions, the the divide. I'd like to understand a little bit more about Western Ukraine because that seems they're and they seem to be intensely focused towards wanting to be integrated to the European Union and to the West. But then you do have these areas of the East that don't want to be in that sphere. Is that le- going to lead Ukraine to being split? I will let Peter S. answer that question. Um, but before I do, I just want to address your question. I would like to um, identify the two warring factions first. So to, yeah, to a certain extent, a uh, Western Ukraine, of course, feels deeply afflicted by this conflict. And of course, they are directly involved in it. But they aren't the active participants in it. The, so to, to deal with the factions involved... Um, we have to identify the, the Russian sympathizers in the East uh, and the fact that they are ideologically motivated to separate from the Ukraine uh, and be annexed as, as, as the Crimea was, and, and the opposing faction to them, which is the, the traditional Ukrainians in East Ukraine, which uh, to a certain extent are, are less powerful, are less persuasive, and they have – and they're – Largely less represented in the in public of in in the government, um, where the western part of Ukraine. Uh, I'll let Peter Peter Sleeman talk about that. Um. Yeah. Well, I think Brock's asking me to talk because he doesn't want to make a political prediction, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is always scary. Um. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, what makes this interesting is that uh, the Western part of Ukraine wasn't part of uh, the Russian Empire. It, um, it remained, you know, largely independent from Russia. Um, it was a province of Austria-Hungary. So it was, you're absolutely right, it was part of a um, Western sphere of influence, the European sphere of influence, um, as opposed to the Eastern uh, side of Ukraine. Um, so there are definitely, as we've discussed already, um, you know, conflicts between the East and West, different cultures coming into um, clash, different ideologies and different religions, different identities that are constantly um, fighting with each other. Now, is this going to lead to a secession? Well, on one side, it already has. Uh, to a certain extent. We've already had secession referendums. Uh, We've already had um, conflicts arising out of um, the the want for sovereignty. Um, But it's very difficult to say one way or the other. And um, I can hear Brock already thinking and wanting to accuse me of being a fence-sitter. But I think that the reason for that is because there's a lot of international pressure on both sides. So the West and with the powers on the Western side, uh, I think America will mainly be one of the biggest considering that Europe at the moment is in its own crisis. Uh, You know, England's probably just about to leave the European Union. That's a whole different thing. But uh, I doubt the European Union is going to be too worried about Ukraine at the moment with their own thing going on. America would not want Ukraine to split up any further than it already has, and that's in order to keep NATO intact. And America historically has been very good at attaining its own interests um, 
except for maybe Vietnam. Um, but it's been usually very good at keeping countries that it wants together and stopping countries um, and, you know, breaking up countries that it, that it wants to break up. Um, now, so I think it comes really comes down to whether who's going to win that power struggle. Is it going to be America or Russia? Um, but at the end of the day, I don't know how, how the split would happen if it happens any further. I mean, Crimea has already been annexed. It's, a, it's already done. And Crimea is what Russia wanted. Well, it's what Russia's wanted for a very long time. Um, now, would it split any further? Um, I'd have to say that from what I'm reading, a likely, it's, it's, it's a possibility and it's a, it's a probable possibility. But I'm not sure that America would allow it because this isn't just a normal... Um, conflict. This is an international conflict between two very powerful ideologies being played out. To a certain extent, and I know that some political thinkers have already done this comparison, it's almost reminiscent of a Cold War um, scenario playing out, because this is exactly what Russia and America did during the Cold War. They couldn't go to war with each other, because they both had nuclear weapons, so they fought proxy wars in different places. Cuba, Angola, um, different areas in Africa constantly. There were always proxy wars going going on, and we saw the effects of those. And a partition happened, such as what happened in Korea. Um, and this can be seen to a certain extent as a continuation of those conflicts with Russia stepping up its game as a world power. Um, so I'm not sure is my answer to the question of whether they're going to split or not, because there are there are very powerful players that are you know, that are involved here. Um, and yeah, but what I would like to bring up is just, sorry, Brock, just to interrupt you, is um, Brock and I recently did a, a, a talk on the Panama Papers and uh, Proshenko, who is the um, president of Ukraine at the moment, was very heavily implicated in the corruption scandals of the Panama Papers. Now, that's going to have an effect on the demographics of, on the, on the, on the people of Ukraine. Um, Poroshenko has often shown himself or presented himself as a very high-minded, um, fair, um, ideal politician, and he's proven himself not to be. Now, the effect that that's going to have, I think, is going to lose him a lot of trust um, in Western Ukraine and vindicate a lot of his antagonists in Eastern Ukraine. Um, and I think that, if anything, that would probably add to the possibility of a split happening. Um, to Brock or Pete S., do you think that NATO will directly get involved or the United States? Is it that important? And what would what would be the consequence of that? Look, again, it's it's difficult to say. The, uh, in international relations, things move incredibly fast. And you've seen that uh, NATO gets involved in things that they said that they wouldn't and they don't get involved with in things that they abs- you know, probably should. So last last thing that NATO was involved in was uh, the conflict in, uh, in Libya, which they were very much uh, uh, criticized for. Um, and, you know, NATO is NATO is an international treaty. Um, signed between a whole bunch of Western states, America, England, France being the major ones, but there are tons of different states involved in that. But unfortunately, NATO is often seen as an American um, actor. It's not, but America does have very strong sway in that. Now, I don't know, it's, 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 diffi- it's difficult to say because, you know, it, it refers back to your earlier question of whether Ukraine could split or not. 
And as I said, Ukraine already did split. Um, you know, I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but the Donetsk People's Republic, they did self-proclaim themselves as independent. Now, um, I just saw that uh, they have signed a, an agreement um, that says that they will reintegrate as long as they get some kind of self-government um, in a new constitution, basically setting up Ukraine as a, fed, as a federal state. Now, if that happens, I don't see any reason why NATO would want to get involved. Um, and not to mention the fact that if NATO gets involved in a conflict that involves Russian uh, fighters, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, and American policymakers know that very much. They're very aware that they don't want to get involved into any kind of close-quarter combat with Russian fighters um, and neither does Western Europe, uh, England and France. Basically, any nuclear-powered state will not want to get involved in conflict with any other nuclear-powered state. Um, so I would say it's unlikely, to be honest, that NATO would get involved itself. They might definitely support the Ukrainian government in form of arms or, tr or training or, you know, through putting um, further sanctions on on Russia and anybody else who's involved but I doubt very much that NATO itself would get involved to exacerbate the conflict uh, that being said I don't know I could be wrong about this I we, I, we we've learned to be very uh, careful about the predictions we make about what's going to happen in these very high highly volatile conflicts and really the way it looks now the situation right now and probably going forward it being that the Europeans have a lot more on their plate right now, and even the United States has a lot more on its plate, that it'll become just a proxy war where the U.S. and the West and NATO will give as much support as they can, but not so much to the degree that they feel that either side's going to go to a full-blown conflict and the Russians can, they've pretty much got what they want out of the deal from the sounds of it. To respond to your question, Steve, about the the delicate nature of this conflict, given that the subsequent actions could be seen or could be treated as a proxy war, I would I would say, in my opinion, it it has already been a proxy war for the last for the last two years. It's um, Russia was able to convince the international community that it just wanted a tiny sliver of land called Crimea, and when it got that, it uh, pulled its hands out and it convinced it, it made public statement saying that. It had no more interest in the Ukrainian in the future of the Ukrainian people. However, when we later discovered that you know Russian jets had been violating no-fly regulations and they'd been seen over the the border of Ukraine, plus the fact that you know paramilitary troops had uh, been discovered sneaking across the border to carry out covert military objectives, it became quite clear that Russia wasn't quite done with Ukraine and probably still isn't. But that doesn't concern NATO. It still doesn't concern NATO to the point of in, in intervention. Um, it came very close, but um, but it still it still kept its hands out, treating, allowing the Ukrainian government to deal with the problem mostly on their own. And the reason I believe that is because of the real conflict that that has caught the, the eye of NATO, that's in the Middle East. And because... NATO has so such a large mandate in the Middle East and has so many conflicting allegiances and uh, pockets of power with which to, to interact. It has found itself almost at the 
at the mercy of of Russia, strangely enough, peculiarly enough, not that it depends on its cooperation and its allegiance, but more that it just wants to ha keep Russia in the known field. So rather than having to add Russia to the list of, of factions whose intentions are unknown, it's quite happy to be semi-friendly with, with Putin and his administration, particularly his military advisors, so that whatever its interactions are with Turkey and with ISIS, that it can it doesn't have to count NATO doesn't have to count on its cooperation, like I said, but more just know what its intentions will be and it can count on them to follow through on those intentions. So with its with with both eyes on the Middle East, it's um, it, I think that the NATO's interests in the Ukraine are, are trying to leave it be as long as possible uh, and treat it more uh, more or less like a like a proxy battle in which to ideologically engage with Russia but not militarily. And um, Pete, do you have anything that to wrap up for today? Yeah, I think you know I completely agree with Brock. Um, but and of I course, think I'm a superior student. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's important to note here is to look at the, um, you know, who who's trying to do what. Um, you know, every international actor is, is attempting to maximize the amount of power they have in the international sphere. And, um, you know, Russia is, oh, kind you of, realist. Russia is kind of getting back on its feet um, after, you know, a huge amount of changes that happened since the fall of communism and... It's really starting to, you know, throw its weight around in the international community, and you know, you know, Brock alluded to that with, you know, Russia going going up against ISIS uh, when America was kind of not really willing to get involved again in another conflict in the Middle East. Um, and if you, you know, just I would say look at a map of Europe at the moment, and you can see that Russia is buffeted essentially from the west by three states: it's Ukraine, Belarus. Um, you know, Lithuania and Latvia to, to a certain extent, but Belarus and, and Ukraine are the, are the big ones. And you can see, if you, if you have a look at any kind of Russian foreign policy, those two states are very important to Russia's interests because they keep Russia safe from the West. Russia doesn't know what the West is trying to do, and Russia knows that it, you know, it doesn't have any love lost between itself and the West. And, you know, the, the Western powers, which are, you know, largely represented by NATO and uh, the United Kingdom and, and France and, and uh, America, are also trying to expand their influence the other way as well. And as Brock says, you know, trying to contain the situation going on in the Middle East at the same time. So I would say that as if the West is willing to let Russia be, then Russia is would probably be willing to settle down a little bit. But I doubt that that's going to happen. Um, I would say, if anything, you're, we are getting into a period in international um, relations where it is going to be a little bit of a struggle between Russia and the West. But, you know, in my, in my opinion, it's a struggle that the West is going to win at the end of the day because Russia doesn't have the economic power, nor does it have the longevity to sustain any kind of long-term Cold War 2.0, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting, and I, I think it will be interesting to keep an eye on it. But, I, you know, with the whole world focusing on the Middle East, I think the, the Ukraine will, will kind of simmer down, the lines will formate. And, it, I mean, as Brock said, it's likely to become a, a federal state, which would be the pragmatic response to the conflict at the moment. Well, I want to thank you so much for um, coming on, and this was an Agora Podcast Network production. 
you two are the hosts of the Lands of Leviathan podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about your podcast? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, we are hosts of the Lands of Leviathan podcast, which is what we do is we analyze uh, political and international relations theory, try and make it accessible to people um, through popular culture. So uh, we've done uh, state formation by looking at the zombie apocalypse. Um, we've done Star Wars and looking what at about the today? way that the UN Tell me about functions. today. Yeah, today, uh, well, we have a podcast coming out really soon, which is all about the Panama Papers and political corruption. And uh, we discussed the very cool vampire movie, um, Daybreakers, uh, which was a fun movie that Brock and I both enjoyed. So, yeah, we're basically trying to make uh, political science and international relations theory a bit more accessible to um, everybody uh, through popular culture. It's just, it's a great concept because, I mean, as much as many people are interested in political science, to tie it together with the pop culture is just, it's... Uh... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's a hilarious show. It's informative. So everybody should definitely go and download it. If they do want to download it, where can they find um, more about you? They, so we have uh, formed a website, landsofleviathan.com. That's the best place to start. But obviously all of our podcast episodes are hosted on Acast. And you can find all of those episodes um, on the Agora Podcast Network. Plus, they are on... Well, we're getting ready for the YouTube outlet. And of course, uh, SoundCloud and iTunes are also on that list. But uh, ACAST and the website and the Agora Podcast Network are the best places to start. Yeah, and obviously Facebook and Twitter, under Lands of Leviathan. Yeah, but we don't, you know, those social network things, we're not a big fan of them. You're not a big fan of them. <laughs> no, they're for teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you again for joining us today, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks. We appreciate the opportunity.